Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, the only podcast where you will hear chat about pleather trench coats, Hitchcock, and Save Your Soul Fuckfest in the same episode. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. We've now entered the purely millennial phase of our teen horror season. We've covered the granddaddies of slasher films from the 70s. We've gone down some of the franchise rabbit holes of the 80s. We've done the 90s teen horror revival, and now we're entering the new millennium. Last episode, we had a chat about the hyper-influential Battle Royale, and this week we're going into the somewhat forgotten, very strange teen slasher Cherry Falls, which is also from the year 2000, but was never actually released theatrically in the US. Before we dive into our episode this week, a quick reminder, as usual, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK. And if you have 30 seconds to spare, do leave this podcast a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the algorithm and it helps my self-esteem. I'm joined in this episode by Dr. Alison Pierce to dive into our thoughts and somewhat odd memories of Cherry Falls. The film starring the 2000 staple Brittany Murphy and with a brilliant premise was largely ignored at the time and has not been widely available since then, but it's now come to streaming services on Shudder. So the timing for this episode is perfect. If you haven't watched it yet, you now know where to find it. Please note, as per usual, all of our discussions are spoiler heavy pretty much from the start. And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on Cherry Falls. Alison, welcome back. How have you been? Um, I'm fine, you know, um, in that kind of very Yorkshire way, you could say, as well as to be expected, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> given the world, but everything is fine. Everything is fine. What about you? Well, you know, just uh, now entering the new millennium, reliving, starting to relive my teenage years and questioning and understanding a lot of my own issues yeah. through rewatching these films. <laughs> <laughs> it is... That's that's the joy of this, isn't it? Though, like, I mean, because I I was a teenager when Cherry Falls came out, so that, like you say, it's just so interesting going back and revisiting these and going, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's that's what I was watching. All right. <laughs> yeah. So um. So I wanted to to ask you, kind of, you you picked this film from the from the list that I sent you that I was going to cover in this season. What is your relationship with Cherry yeah. Falls? Um, well, it's it's slightly strange actually because um although I was watching a lot of the kind of nineties and two thousands era slashes in the cinema given I was a teenager at the time, um I only came to this film about eighteen months ago. I'd seen it mentioned online and I was convinced I'd seen it at the cinema. And I was like, I remember going to see that. It was a slasher, there was like there was a tooth fairy and it being quite brutal. So I got hold of a copy and started to rewatch it and I was like, there was, there's no tooth fairy. 
in this film. <laughs> I was sure there was a brother and sister and there's no brother and sister in this film and there's no truth fairy. And at that point I realised I'd been thinking about Darkness Falls, not Cherry yeah. Falls. And that's a completely <laughs> different film. <laughs> and so I watched Cherry Falls for the first time, waiting for a tooth fairy to come in and thinking, I don't remember this film at all. And then I watched this film and I was like, wow, this film is, this film is interesting. <laughs> I mean, it is. But what's also interesting is this, like, these second films that we create in our heads. Sometimes we have seen them and sometimes we have not. And sometimes we merge certain films together and kind of just have images in our mind that don't correspond to the actual film that we're watching. And I find those so interesting because it's so, it's like remembering dreams, basically. Completely. Well, my enduring image was that I was waiting for a scene where there was like a big tree on a hill and like I think the tooth fairy was in a tree or like the the younger brother was in a tree or there was some dismemberment in a tree on a hill with a slasher tooth fairy and just none of this existed in this film at all, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how you got from Cherry Falls to Tooth Fairy, but we, we will digress too much. So let's, um, <laughs> let's revisit this film. And because you're right, this is not a film that I think really people go to immediately. It's not one of the kind of most famous, uh, late nineties, two thousands slasher films. So can you do a little brief synopsis of me of Cherry Falls? I was thinking about how you do a synopsis of this film without um, pausing every 10 seconds to ask a million questions about like what the filmmaker's intention was. Um, but I've decided I'm just going to do my best to do a very brief summary of like the premise. So it's small town America. It's um, modern day, um, somewhere in Virginia. And there is a serial killer on the loose and this serial killer is picking on virgins from the local high school. Um, and we really follow the story of two main characters. Um, the first one is Jodie, who's played by Brittany Murphy. And she's like nominally our final girl. And we also follow the kind of exploits of her father, um, the sheriff. And the story is about... Brittany Murphy trying to decide like when to have sex so she's not going to get killed and her father trying to track down the serial killer. Great job on that and actually you pointed out one of the most interesting things about this film is that the two main characters are a teenager and adult which we don't yes. really get that usually in teen horror. And and we'll come back to Jody and and her dad later on but mm. I wanted to ask you, where does this film sit for you within kind of the the tail end of of the slasher revival that came in the nineties? Obviously, this yeah. came out in the year two. Well, came out as a strong expression <laughs> for what happened with Cherry Falls. Yeah. This film was finished and uh, not released in the year two thousand, but we're counting it as the year two thousand. Yeah. Uh, where does it sit, kind of at this um, now decline? 
of the slasher genre. It's really interesting, like, looking at this film retrospectively. I think, like, looking at it Mm -hmm. from the here and now. Because, like, Mm -hmm. obviously, it must have got green lit because of the slasher revival in the mid-90s. So it's got... Mm -hmm. The production's obviously got green lit off the back of, like, Scream and Urban Legend and all of those. Um, But by the... So it's like... it's put through in 98, it's made in 99, which is the tail end of things. But actually, when you watch it, for me, it prefaces more what's going to come up in like the mid 2000s. So like the uh, the mm-hmm. obsession yes. with kind of like depicting violence on teen bodies is like very much a precursor to something like House of Wax for me. Like I, I rewatch. It's like a... I was I was thinking this uh, as I was rewatching it last night. It's pretty much a pre-torture porn, torture exactly. porn film. Exactly. I kept writing "saw" down in my notes. It's just it is mm. a pre-torture porn film. So, like, it, it sits like like so many aspects of this film. It sits in this weird limbo between knowing that it's been picked up at the end of the glossy '90s revival, but actually, it prefigures just like a real interest in like lingering on shots of tormented teenage bodies and just tormented bodies in general. So my reference points for this over and over when I rewatched it last night was just Saw and House of Wax. So even though they didn't come out for a couple of years afterwards, it feels very much Mm -hmm. like it's gesturing towards that as much as anything else. Also because it seems to, the killer seems to focus a lot more on the torture or just the slashing yeah. for slashing sake as opposed to um, slashing someone to kill them. Yeah. Like, um, there is a there is a sense of kind of prolonged uh, pleasure that they take in actually inflicting pain versus just getting the job done. Yeah, completely. And like, if you go back to the 80s, like you really don't see anything ever. Like it's all done through the editing and insinuation. It's, I mean, obviously you do see some stuff, but you know, like I'm talking to you. Well, I'm like, thinking about like context, Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah. But I think like talking it with like our long horror history, like comparatively speaking, like mm-hmm, the, you mm-hmm. don't see that much until, you know, in comparison to what comes up later on. But here there's just like... I mean, I'm sure we might talk about it later, but every time there's a flashback and every single flashback in this film is ill-judged, but every single flashback is just about hurting bodies in like close-up mm-hmm. and showing them in close-up in fear and pain and this kind of like lavish like obsession with the with um like the knife going in and just lingering on it in a really like what feels like weird and uncomfortable way. I mean, it's obvious like Mm. the knife into the virgins. It's like the, obviously it's like the penetration. They're trying to make like a really, you know, subtle point here. Um, But Mm. it does really feel like they're really lingering on it in a way that doesn't feel high end and glossy in a way that some of the nineties ones do. (laughs) No, because there's also, even the teenagers are, 
kind of grimy. Yeah. Like it is very, it is very much, you know, of what I like to call kind of new metal cinema. I love that. Where it's like there was that particular style and aesthetic of that era, kind of late 90s, yeah. bleeding into the 2000s, kind of starting, because it's, it's the antithesis of the very, very high feminine, very pink, very glossy kind of reality, yeah. celeb obsessed kind of mainstream culture that existed. And then the other coin of the mainstream culture, which was completely parallel, was this like new metal, yeah. hardcore vibe yeah. that was kind of grimy. Like it wasn't grimy <laughs> like punk in the 70s was grimy. It was just like, ooh, you are making money just like all the, all the Paris Hiltons yeah. are. But at the same time, you look like you kind of don't shower, but you're wearing very expensive clothes, but you smell in them. That's the vibe that I'm talking about. Kind of not, not, not gross, just kind of grimy. And I got that sense from all the teenagers and the style of the film as well here. Like everything was a bit, um, not cheap because yeah. this film had a decent budget. But kind of cheap on purpose. Like they were going for that very unslick, un-Hollywood look and we're, feel. We're so on the same page. I'm looking at some of the notes I made last night and literally right in front of me, I've put the production design is muted overall. It is unspectacular. Or to be kind, it is every day. <laughs> I mean, that's extremely kind because what I wrote was uh, just like gross. <laughs> and also Britney, Britney Murphy's fringe. What is happening? Oh, oh, that's classic though. That's like classic 90s fringe. <laughs> this is, you know, when you're a girl at high school and you decide to cut your own fringe with nail scissors and it goes really badly wrong. And then you decide that actually you quite like it. So it's a super, sh <laughs> so many kind of indie girls were rocking that terrible home hacked nail scissors fringe they were <laughs> listen a lot of people in on horror twitter and whatnot talk a lot of shit about uh, courtney cox's uh, fringe and scream three <laughs> not enough people are talking about britney murphy's no. fringe and cherry no. falls is what i'm oh, saying absolutely and i love i love her um costume design and like her best mate mm. timmy who was not in it enough and in an alternative version of this film that i imagine where um timmy and jody go after the killer and do some like proper investigation to get in and solve it which is not really mm. what happens but <laughs> like Timmy and Jodie in this I just love their aesthetic they're totally the mm. kids that I would have hung around with in high school like the nose ring the fake fur jacket the eyeliner just all over your face like this <laughs> these are the people I would have been with the way Jodie wears um a long black pleather trench coat I Oh my god, I love I, that trench coat. I would wear that trench coat today. Yeah, I totally had one of them. I got it from my mum's case <gasps> catalogue account in like 97. And I loved I love it. This. And I wore it to like all the hardcore punk gigs I was going to. I was I was into it. And the fact that she wears it with a crop top. And again, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. It was all about like the O'Neill crop tops in the UK at that point. And the crop top, the pleather trench coat everything i would i would be best friends with them forever they would be my people i gen i'm not even joking go anyone listening to this go to asos right yeah. now what you'll <laughs> see on the cover is basically jody's outfit from the one of the beginning of scenes of cherry falls yeah. it makes uh, me feel so old because this is like the second time round, like the 90s <laughs> the late 90s has come back i'm like oh my god i really am old i'm so old now <laughs> 
So one of the things that that kind of makes this film so interesting and actually quite I mean I really enjoyed it. I yeah. think it's quite a smart premise is that it completely inverts the slasher trope of, you know, like Randy Meek says in Scream, if you have yeah. sex, you're going to die. But here everyone who's a virgin is the one who's the target. So um how do you think it explores kind of this theme of of teen sexuality and how does the film deal with it well i do think it's a smart premise like you know you're always looking for like what's your unique angle that's going to make your film Mm -hmm. stand out and this is it isn't it like if you don't want to die you are going to have to have sex so i like that as a premise um, and i think it's one of the things that make cherry falls stands out um where the where and how the film executes it i feel is a bit more shaky um like mm-hmm. we've if you um if you're aware of the shout factory blu-ray you'll be aware of the production history mm-hmm. and kind of a tension between the script and the screenwriter mm-hmm. who wanted to make it much more like comedic and a satire that was ken selden and the director jeffrey wright who wanted to see it far more serious so the teen sexualities are handled in a really kind of inconsistent way in the film so there are lots of moments where the teens are delivering lines that are really hilarious and ridiculous um but they're shot straight and they're shot with like Mm -hmm. this like moody lighting and trip hop soundtrack and you're like this is played like it's like it's written like it's american pie and it's shot like it's the most serious film in the world so that kind of gives this weird turn about the sexuality i think like there's two different films going on here there's like a jokey arch knowing you better get on and have sex and have that massive orgy versus i'm having like a serious dark film here so it makes it really inconsistent i don't know what you think well, I kind of got a a Heather's vibe a little yes. bit from it because I th- I thought that teen speak was very funny, <laughs> especially because they kept trying to do alliteration, but when talking about basically losing their virginity, yeah. so it's like it's a hybrid holocaust is my favorite line <laughs> of the film. <laughs> yes, it is like it is so trying to be funny and punny. Yeah but in a really, really dark yeah. way. But then I think the visuals are... But it made me really think of Heather's because Heather's has this like teen world, yeah. like this teen otherworldly element to it where it is gorgeous, but it's also very yeah. dark. And it's and it's very provocative and kind of bloody and very disturbing while also being within kind of this color palette of girl world, yeah. right? And of this it kind of completely timeless teenage world. Whereas this wants to feel very timely so it very much roots itself at the end of the and they between the end and the start of the millennium so it feels very of its time the soundtrack the clothes the the fringe everything (laughs) and at the same time it wants to be like we were talking about the beginning kind of this very torture focused um kind of intense violent slasher film that is about sex but it's not meant to be sexy and i think the not meant to be sexy thing it does really well because one of the things about the other slashers is that there's always well often there's a random kind of sexy going on where it's like oh wait this is like very romantic and and you know cutesy and kind of erotic and you're like no no there's no time for this everyone's gonna die unless they fuck (laughs) uh, but also no one's gonna have a good time really so there's it's so teenage in that regard which i appreciate (laughs) but the visuals just don't 
I don't know if they gel completely no. because that's kind of more realistic than a slow yes. motion lovemaking scene in the middle of a of screen. Or whether they're very jarring. I'm kind yeah, of torn. Yeah, and I, it's because I don't, I don't entirely trust the filmmaker to deliver like a unified vision by the end of the film. So as we're leading up to the end of the film, you know that we're going to see a massive orgy. You know that we're gonna mm. like Jodie is gonna run into that room and there's gonna be loads of teenagers having like white heterosexual sex. <laughs> there's gonna be so and like because it's so inconsistent, I'm kind of tense watching it for the first time going, how the hell are they gonna shoot this? How the hell are they going to shoot this? Because I'm terrified at what they're going to put on screen at this point. <laughs> so was I. And I, because I haven't seen, I think I saw this film probably, so years after it was out, but uh, that I, I was still a teenager because I have vague, very vague memories of it. And I did not remember the orgy yeah. scene. And as I was watching it last night, I was like, oh God, how are they going to shoot a bunch of teenagers? Yeah. You know, like 25-year-olds pretending yeah. to be teenagers all having sex yeah. in the same room. I was like, oh God, is this going to be like society? <laughs> she going to walk into society? <laughs> and then of course she walks in and it's just a bunch of teenagers making out on their yeah. blankets. And you're like, in oh, underwear. it's fine. It's the 90s. <laughs> They're yeah. all in their underwear. <laughs> This is not an orgy, fellas. This is just a bunch of awkward makeout sessions all in the yeah. same room. Calm yourselves. <laughs> it's it's so it's so strange. The whole thing is so it's strange. So funny though. <laughs> so w- we've kind of talked a little bit about the the premise, but what do you make of the teens themselves and the way that they speak in particular? The teens speak well. I. Continuing on the kind of thing around how it treats sex, I thought there was a reasonably entertaining point where we have like the beautiful girl with the long blonde hair stood on the bleachers instructing all the girls what's going to happen at the orgy and being very clear like girls you are not going to get an orgasm you are not going to get any kind of real stimulation this is going to be about just putting it in the hole and they're all like oh god really and then talking about all the different forms of contraception and then they um cut to three lads in a car getting stoned debating whether girls have two or three holes down there and I was like (laughs) Okay, yeah, so that's quite funny. Um, and then, so I like, I like the kind of knowingness of the gender politics with it, but the actual language, I'm not sure about. I think, mm. I think what it is, is I really like it whenever Brittany Murphy's on screen. I do love her in it. Although I was thinking about this, I feel like she plays Jodie as like a stoned Marilyn Monroe meets Frenchie from Greece. Like, there's this really... <laughs> I was like, who is she like? like, she reminds me of Frenchie. The way she delivers her lines, she's kind of Frenchie. And stoned Marilyn she Monroe. Does. Um, So I kind of don't even listen to what she's saying, apart from when she goes, oh, daddy. Which is very upsetting. Oh, my God. Um, it's very, no. <laughs> no. But basically, whenever Brittany Murphy's on screen, I'm kind of just watching Brittany Murphy and not listening to her <laughs> I'm just watching like her fill the screen with her charisma. Yeah, she's she's such an 
odd but great presence yeah. like she's so charismatic and she's so watchable but she is always she's always had that thing where she always feels like a very twitchy yeah. kind of performer yeah. like even i think of her a lot and kind of girl interrupted yeah. and then um in oh my god what else was she in that she was massive and yeah. clueless obviously and there there's always like she's always in the verge of tears yeah just just you push her a little bit and she's just gonna start her big doe eyes are going to yeah. start kind of wobbling and filling up with water and you're like oh no I don't want to hurt Ricky Murphy <laughs> yeah. but also like that's when she goes off and off the rails yeah. but she does have this thing in this film where she's she's a lot more kind of um active and, and fierce yeah. and kind of mean but in a good way as in like she's mean to her asshole boyfriend yeah. which I appreciated a lot yes. it's like you know what go Jodie yeah exactly and when she um, we, we need to pause to discuss the asshole boyfriend for a minute so Kenny is clearly played by someone who's about 42 which um, <laughs> <laughs> Gabriel yeah, like, he like like we all know about like mid 20 somethings playing teens in horror films mm-hmm. and we roll with that but they were really pushing the casting I feel with Kenny Kenny looks so old so <laughs> This guy I find very funny because I only know him. So you know how sometimes you watch films at a particular age and you just remember those actors for life and they're not necessarily, they don't get big. They don't become like massively famous. You know, this is not Michelle Williams or, you know, Joshua Jackson we're talking about. This is Gabriel Mann. So I was and and still I'm obsessed with Josie and the Pussycats, the movie. And he plays the, 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 the nothing boyfriend of Josie or love interest of Josie in that movie. And that was around the same time. And I was like, this is an old man. At this, <laughs> this is an old man. He really is an old man. Yeah. And you can gel his hair up to make him look young as much as he wants. But all the hair gel oh God, in the, the world hair. will not stop the fact that he is an old man. <laughs> but, but, so I'm actually going to Google how old he was. Do you know what? He's probably only like five years older than Brittany Murphy, but he looks like a really old man. <laughs> he was 26. He was 26. He looks he 36. Looks I'm so sorry, Mr. Man. I'm so sorry. But yes, it, he also had that vibe of like, you are, he had that vibe of like a mid twenties dude who was hanging out and going out with high school yes. girls. And you're like, why are you doing that? So not sir? just an old man, but a bad man. We all know those 26 year old yes. guys who are going out with 16 year old girls and they are bad men. They're not good. <laughs> but he is so perfect for Kenny though, because he, he's not that hot. Like mm. I never understood. He's, he's not hot at all, but. He has that kind of slimy, assholey vibe. He's got a kind of soft boy vibe, yeah. I think. He's perfect for that because he's going to be like, oh, yeah, baby, yeah, we've been together for a year. Great. Oh, you won't have sex with me? Yeah, it's not working out for me. So I got to leave. Oh, we now have to legally have sex so we don't get murdered? Hey, hey. girl. How and, you doing? And I'm going to get, I'm going <laughs> to show like him. added depth by playing my guitar. So. Oh my god! He also has the guitar on Josie and the Pussycats, and I wanted to hit, I wanted to slap him so bad in that film. Josie, you can do better yeah. than this, please. Yeah. yeah, and again, all the hair gel and all the guitar playing doesn't give him any depth, and he's still just an asshole. <laughs> but kind of a, a perfect teenage, uh, a perfect high school yeah. asshole, isn't he? Yeah, completely. But again, then the film decides to kind of resurrect him at the end and make him a bit of a hero. And it's like, what? We already had him. We signed him off as the asshole boyfriend. Don't have him come back and be like a rescue man. Like, what's that yeah. about? No redemption no, for Kenny. We don't, we don't no want 
Redemption for Kenny. Be redeemed. We were quite happy. Like he should have had his throat cut like a long time ago. Like we've established his trajectory. He's not supposed to come back at this point. <laughs> so, what do you make of uh, of Jody as a final girl then? <sighs> Can- <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> like okay, so. Again, this is with the caveat that I love Brittany Murphy. I love Brittany Murphy in this. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I wanted Jodie as a character, like, to do a bit more. I do, I mean, we'll get onto the parents, but I do feel like the film lingers too long on her dad, the sheriff. And they're mm-hmm. like, there are a few scenes where Jodie like actually does shit. Like she decides to hide out above the gym and watch the parents meeting. And she goes to the library to go through the microfiche, which I love. Um, any slasher film, scenes. yeah, with microfiche, oh like Amityville. I love it. Like I screenshot whenever I, I find characters. What, what <laughs> I always screenshot them when they're on microfiche in the library. It makes me really happy. Mm-hmm. So she does. Oh, that's one of the reasons why I love jur- films about journalists yes. as well. And slasher films with journalists involved. Oh, Amazing. My, oh, absolute yeah. jam. So she does like a couple of things. Um, but the majority of the time, she's not really like driving it. Like when it comes to the final confrontation with the serial killer, she's there because she wants to get it on with her hot teacher. It's not like she's, do you know, do you know what I mean? So, and yeah, like yeah. I wanted more. This is going back to my earlier comment. I love Jodie mm-hmm. and I love Timmy and I think Timmy is severely underused and like murdering mm. him and putting him in a cupboard really early on is an error. Like I needed the middle of the film to be Jodie and Timmy like teaming up and Timmy's on the, Timmy's on the school paper. So that totally gives him kind of investigative journalism stuff and they can go ask questions. And I just imagine this whole other version of the film where they actually drove the middle of it. You know, mm. rather than just kind of running away. And like Jodie's main arcs is like, I don't want to have sex with Kenny. Um, maybe I do want to have sex with Kenny. I'm going to explain that I want to have sex with Kenny by telling him to bite my finger really hard in a way that I don't quite understand. And then it's okay. I'm not going to have sex with Kenny. I'm going to try and get it on with my teacher. And that's kind of like her, her main active thought process, apart from this little bit with the microfiche. So it, in, to go back to the final girl, I love, I love every moment that she's on screen, but I just wanted more screen. You know, she's always in it's- circumstances rather than driving yeah. it. And she's also, I mean, to be fair, that is usually the pattern of behavior for final, for most yeah. final girls, at least in the first yeah. film. They get more agency yeah. in the sequels. Yeah. But I, I think that's a pretty, like, a pretty good teenage girl thought process. <laughs> to be yeah. Fair. Yeah. If we're talking like them, like you were saying about the yeah. realistic version of the teen RJ. Yeah. yeah. This is like maybe the more realistic version of what the teenage girl is thinking about. Like the way when Timmy dies and they're like the next scene, her and her mm. friend, they're just like talking about something else. I was like, why are like completely self-absorbed teenagers, aren't they? Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. Teenagers are assholes, as Kevin Williamson told us. But I, I mean, we ha- can we pause and just talk about that very weird, in, like middle of the film attempted sex scene with Kenny, yeah. where she just starts slapping him with her yes. foot. This, 
And I, just, I, I don't, don't get, get it. it. And I was like, okay, so this is where she's dis- determined she's going to be, she's going to play like a really dominant, quite aggressive role. And this is going to be the flip side of the beginning where Kenny's kind of pressuring her and she's saying no. And now she's going to take it. But it's just done in this really strange way. And I'm literally sat there going, I don't know what I'm supposed to make of this scene. Yeah. I really don't know. The foot. <laughs> The bite in my finger, bite it harder, bite it harder, bite it harder. Like, what? What is this? Like, I know that a lot of times people, well, I mean, this is a, a digression, but let me bring in some film Twitter yeah. nonsense into this conversation. Um, there was an article in Variety that was so laughably bad a few days mm. ago, maybe a week, who knows, time. But it just, it just said, basically the headline was, huh, some art house films are quite strange, aren't they? <laughs> and tried to come up with this definition for them called bizarre art house, wink, uh, wink. It's like, no, please leave. Never write uh, again. Definitely never write about film. No. But my point being that like, I suddenly thought about that article who was like, oh, so, you know, these, some of the recent indie films like, the lighthouse are a bit weird aren't they i was like uh-huh and then when i was watching cherry falls it's like no this is proper this weird is really this weird. is weird because i don't actually fucking know what to make no. of this is this supposed to be sexy yeah is this supposed to be like awkward is this supposed to be scary is britney murphy the killer yes. you know like what are we going for here <laughs> like also why are feet involved why? is this a tarantino movie what is this happening is it. and you know like i was desperately trying to read more into it to work out some deeper meaning i'm like is this some kind of like abuse cycle is she replaying some abuse of what she thinks is sexy and I was like I don't think it's that I was like maybe Jodie has a foot yeah. fetish and she's exploring yeah. that but no no, no. Uh, it might be all of those things and none of them at the same I time I mean the only thing that made sense was Kenny's like reaction which is essentially to just politely back <laughs> off and go you know I know I said I wanted to have sex with you no I don't think so <laughs> you know what I, I will only say this one time and I almost resent myself for saying it, but good yeah, for good Kenny. for Kenny. Do <laughs> being the normal person in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> so we've kind of skirted around the actual killings and the killer. Yes. So let's talk about the killer of Cherry Falls and how they operate. Yeah. So this is um, one of those that <clears throat> this film. like you know when you're like I don't know the best way to phrase this so some of these things in this film is really dated and has not landed well like some of the Mm -hmm. things in these films are just weird and don't make sense some of them are very cool and then some of the films are just weird and dated so having the serial killer being someone who dresses in their mother's clothing is obviously like a psycho homage, um, but also just seems weird and dated, like, and not handled particularly well. And we don't get any real kind of insight into what they're trying hmm. to do with that, with the gender. And then obviously we've got the stabbing and the penetration and that being the substitute for sex, which is pretty like on the nose. So the whole kind of serial killer dressed in his mother's clothing, but is it, is gender just being used to kind of make us think it's a woman? 
like, is it Jodie's mother? Is it the sheriff's sidekick who stares at Jodie a lot? Or is it mm. trying to do something else? It's it's um it's it's strange. Is this one? You see, I I thought because I forgot obviously about the reveal yeah. of the killer, so I thought, ooh, there's a killer in like a pleather skirt yeah. and more heels pleather. and more with, pleather. Yeah, I mean, I'm all into it, so <laughs> I'm okay with that. Or in like you know um, long red nails, red nail polish. Oh yeah, big on the nails. Yeah, I was like, oh okay, yeah. I mean, this feels a little bit too on the nose. Hey, I'm a woman, but. So maybe it is a woman. It's like I was trying to. I thought it was Jodie's mom yeah. for 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 a big chunk of the film, and and then when the reveal came, I was like, oh, it's a like millennial psycho ripoff. Yeah, that and also it's not very thoughtful about it either. Exactly, and that's the dated aspect of it that it's just it's just mm. plonked in. Which you know, given it was written in the nineties, made at the end of the nineties, is probably an accurate representation of how much thought went into it. But like watching it today, you're like, oh, that's not great. But also, like, there's a certain point, reasonably early on in the film, where it becomes apparent that the gender is just um, to like confuses so you know when the mm-hmm. killer is chasing her in the science laboratory and yes. it's shot in a way like they've not even been like super creative with the shooting it's shot in like massive like wide um serial killer in the middle of the screen running forwards and so the only way to hide the identity is to have the massive sheet of black hair right over the face <laughs> and the scenes <laughs> where the serial killer's running right at Jodie with the knife with like uh, the biggest curtain of hair fully over the face and like you're literally <laughs> this is just to disguise us like this there is no way that any killer or anyone chasing someone else mm-hmm. is going to run with like three inches of hair directly in front of their eyes so it's kind of like oh I just feel like you could have shot that in a more inventive way so it wasn't obvious that you were just disguising who the identity was and like no matter as many giant sharks as you want to put into that scene we're still gonna know <laughs> That you're just hiding the identity of the killer for the people watching at home. <laughs> I mean, please don't cancel me for this, but I started thinking about *Malignant* a lot right. as soon as the as soon as have you seen Not *Malignant*? Yet, no, but <laughs> oh dear. Well, when you see *Malignant*, right? remember *Cherry Falls*. Oh, okay. *Cherry Falls* walked so that *Malignant* could run. Oh, so <laughs> oh, so like all I'm thinking about now is I really hope there's a giant swinging shark in *Malignant*, or if not, maybe it's the killer with hair over the face. So. <laughs> it's the killer with very long, very thick yeah. Uh, hair. Yeah, not yeah. the shark. That's a shame. No, sadly not. Sadly not. Maybe in the sequel. Yeah, Who maybe. knows? Let's hope. <laughs> And what did you make of the um, reveal that it was Jodie's, um, well, Jay Moore, I can't remember the teacher's name, Jay Moore, her teacher, yes. who really likes T.S. Eliot, uh, and that is not a lot, that is not weird at all, Mr. Jay Moore, that you're just like letting Brittany Murphy breathlessly and with her eyes closed, like, recite T.S. Eliot to you. In. Like, th- this is oh. one of the things, again, that just doesn't 
stand up today. Like there, there are many aspects of this film which are just strange regardless of when you watch it. Uh, but this thing mm. about like kind of being into your teacher is like more representative of it kind of being the night and everyone just shrugging and going, huh, okay. Um, but the <laughs> fact that this film not only has her been into her teacher and her teacher kind of seeming like to be fine with that. Like when she says mm-hmm. like, can we get together and talk later? Just the two of us. And he's like, sure. <laughs> no, just say no. Sure. Now run along. Um, but then when it turns out that the teacher that she's into is her half brother and you're like, Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Okay. This is just adding like another like incest level of vibe onto a film. (laughs) It's already got so many red flags and questions about it. It's so weird. (laughs) Oh my God. And. You mentioned uh, uh, in our conversation as well that you thought that all of the flashbacks were very ill-judged. Yes. Um, tell me about that. I, because that's how we find out about the actual motivation for the killing. Yeah, so again, so there's, there's various flashbacks. So there's at the beginning of the film, we have a prologue where some teens are in a car and they're going to have sex. And we know that a, ser- a killer turns up and has like a stab fest. And then later, when the <laughs> sheriff gets to the scene, there's like a random flashback, like not generated by anybody who's there. So it's not even anyone's point mm-hmm. of view. It's like the sheriff looks at this tree where the body of the girl is. And then there's a completely unmotivated flashback to her like screaming and being killed. And I'm like, why is this even there? Is this like omniscient? Like, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to suggest he might be the killer and he's remembering it? I mean, I'm aware that like this is my job and I read too much into things but it's like there is no reason for this unmotivated <laughs> flashback but it's clearly just there so we can have like a close-up of a girl being tormented and then we have the really completely unnecessary flashbacks that are put in at the end of like the gang rape of Laura Lee and we mm. this is like at this point I feel like this is the third time we've had to hear this so we got everything we needed when Jodie confronted her alcoholic mother in the library, um, which again, he's just never really addressed the fact that her mum's swigging spirits in the kitchen while baking and burning all the biscuits. And Jodie... That's a sentence. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then Jodie's just like, sees her mother and like, no difference in her face. Like, this is standard. I mean, you could argue that mm. this is because of the weight of all the guilt. Now, but I don't feel that with the mother. I think the mother's fine with it all. Anyway, so... Jodie mm-hmm. has confronted her mother in the library and the um, actor has done like a good performance and she's articulated everything that happened with Laura Lee and like the mechanics of what happened and the implications with the headmaster and Jodie's father. And we, we got it all. We got it all. But then at mm-hmm. the end of the film, when um, the killer has tied up Jodie and her father, and then he's like, you know, you're going to tell the story. And Jodie literally goes, I don't need to hear it again. And then the father tells it again anyway. And you're like, okay, so we're <laughs> going to hear it again, even though we've already had it. And then it goes into the flashbacks. And I'm like, oh, now, so we're going to see it. So the mother's told us, the father's told us, and now we're going to actually watch the flashbacks of the girl being assaulted. Amazing. Like, any point there's a flashback in this film, it's just completely unnecessary. Like, there's literally no point to this at all. <laughs> Don't forget that we also hear it from Lori Lee's son. Yes. 
the killer. Oh yeah, that's the other flashback where we. That's the other flashback. Because I was trying to think this one more. Oh, let's have a flashback to a scene of a toddler being tortured in his cot and whipped with some like leather rope by his mother. Let's actually put that scene in because, in case you didn't realise, in horror, everything that you can explicitly see on screen is way more scary than what you can imagine. Because, of course, that's basically how horror works. I'm also I'm also a big fan of the fact that uh Jay Moore's character, the killer, has his mother's teenage love letters <laughs> to the sheriff with him at all oh, times. Obviously. Because you would. And and then the shot of him like, we've got the same color eyes, and they actually don't. <laughs> There's a close-up, but their eyes are completely different yeah, colors. Because I, I'm not actually very good with people's faces. Like my husband's always gaslighting me that I've got facial blindness, but I haven't. I'm just not very good with faces. But I was watching that scene it, where they're in close-up and he's saying, it's so hard to grow up looking like your rapist father. And there's the, sh- the two shots and I'm like, but they don't look like each other. <laughs> they don't look at each other. And also, also by the way, uh, the rapist dad, who's now the sheriff, is played by Michael Bean from Terminator. <laughs> so it's like all sorts of weird this connections. Is so weird. Yeah. And I'm like, is this me? Is this my weird thing about not recognizing faces? Or do they just look nothing like each other at all? Well, they're like two blonde yeah. men with not a lot of facial yeah. hair. So I guess, like, I, I guess, sure. Yeah. I can like, believe it. I can yeah, believe like it. They're white. They've got blonde hair. They're clean shaven. They've got eyes. <laughs> That's enough. But. It's when Jay is like, we've got the same color eyes and there's a big close-up on his eye. And then there's the, it cuts to a big close-up of Michael Bean's eye. Yeah. And they're two completely different colors. Right, this film is gaslighting me at this point. It's gaslighting me. I'm like, I know you wrote it in the script, but then you cast actors with two, like, light, light colored eyes. And. But not the same color eyes. So it's, you, don't try to make it like a whole Harry Potter thing where, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you've got your mother's yeah. eyes. It's like, no, no you, you don't. don't. And it's clear, like, the memo didn't make it onto set then, did it? <laughs> actual prep. <laughs> so while everything, all of this is going yeah. on, and, le- you know, you rightly pointed out that Jody comes down and the killer reveal happens because Jody wants to fuck yeah, her teacher. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously, as as one does. Uh, but while all of that is happening, the rest of the teenagers have organized a whole orgy yeah. to save themselves. Yeah. So what do you make of this um, end of the world, save yourself kind of fuck fest that they organized? Yeah, because I was like, because of the premise, you know, like the serial killer is preying on virgins. I was like, oh, this would be interesting. Where's this going to go? Because, like, that would insinuate that all the teens need to have sex as quickly as possible. Oh, but they really do. Mm-hmm. They really are going to do it. So the fact that, I mean, you you would you would be able to tell me different on this, but I don't feel like there's many slasher films that conclude with a giant orgy. Like, this is, <laughs> you know, you're quite like, oh, God, they really went there. They really went for it with the pop your cherry ball. Okay, but it's not really a ball, obviously. It's just some abandoned house and, you know, it's done to, like, grungy hip hop. It's that, like, <laughs> grimy 2000s feel. Oh, it's a ball. It's like, it's no, a ball. this is not the 90s. The house is derelict. Yeah. 
Everything is spray painted. Yeah. Everything is grimy. They lit some candles. The rest yeah, is shit. Yeah, exactly. And like you know, they're all just getting it on on like really dirty floorboards. This uh, the whole the whole thing is weird. Like as I've discussed, I was very apprehensive about how they were actually going to shoot this. I was like, what am mm. I gonna see? Because I don't have any faith in like sensible decisions at this point. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I have no faith at all that the filmmakers are being sensible. So I have not got a clue what they're going to do with this. What did you make of what they actually did with um, it? It was fine. <laughs> but then, like, it's fine <laughs> what you want at the end of a slasher film. It's kind of, My feelings were kind of similar to yours in that it's like, oh, they're all just in their underwear, like having a pash. You know? <laughs> it's like uh, I mean I was I'm aware like from the production history research that the director basically shot a version where the actors are all nude but that got cut and I'm kind of pleased because that would have felt even wronger but yeah. I mean this is where you know like I said I feel like there's two different films going on we've got this serious grimy like you would say like the new metal cinema horror thing going on that the director's making and then we've got a nine is American Pie the slasher film going on and the American Pie element comes out once Jodie turns up being pursued by the killer because you know the killer comes in <laughs> and he starts just like slashing at everyone and then it's this like massive visual comedy moment where all the teenagers who've been trying to fuck get onto the stairs but there's too many of them oh, and they yeah. get stuck and the stairs break and they all fall and I'm like this is just like pratfalls I actually found that really scary, Alison. I was like, this is this is realistic and this is my worst nightmare. I don't know. I mean, we know staircases have a long lineage as being important set pieces in horror film. We know this. That's very true. But the yeah. fact that they all get stuck on the stairs and then fall, I'm just like, this is now hilarious. And to be honest, it's this angle that I was more interested in Cherry Falls taking, where they all get stuck and fall down the stairs in a heap. Like, I thought that was great. Well, <laughs> my my I had two three favorite moments in the orgy on. scene. One when Brittany Murphy runs into the room where everyone's yeah. making out and she just she just yells, The killer is the teacher! <laughs> Run! And it's like it just reminded me of because my mind is so polluted by TikTok yeah. sounds now. It just reminded me of that sound of Sarah Paulson <laughs> that's been used on mm-hmm. TikTok where she goes, The killer is escaping! He's escaping! Oh god. And so we just have well, it's clear that you need to get this on TikTok then. This needs to happen. But also, the moment where as she's Jody is running around trying to save all the other teenagers, she opens this little door underneath a staircase, and there's this like really romantic candle lit <laughs> little room where DJ Qualls, one of my favorite like teen staples of the 2000s, <laughs> is just sort of, you know, just you know, under a blanket <laughs> with a girl. And he's not spoken a single line in the film, but he's always yeah. there. And I'm very invested in his um love yeah. journey. And so he's there and she just like close she just tells, stay there and closes the door. So presumably, while all of this is yeah. going down, DJ Squalls is actually losing his virginity with that girl underneath the stairs in a little private room oh, that they've concocted from that's themselves. So romantic, that. I know it's cute. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, and and I forgot my uh, third moment. Well, one of the things that I particularly <laughs> like about the fuck fest at the end is how when they've all fallen down the stairs and broken the stairs, which is actually one of my favourite moments, and um, they all just get mm-hmm. covered in blankets. Um, and so yes. when the killer turns up. And in fact, we need to pause here on my discussion of blankets to talk about how Jodie dispatches the killer. 
<laughs> at the end. Ooh. So like Jode was facing off against the killer. She's having a final girl moment and she kind of pushes him out of the window. But then we have to believe that he has enough momentum to stagger right across the balcony and off the end of the balcony to hit the floor. And that's how he dies when he's like speared by some old fencing. And it's like he would have just fallen through the window. Like there, there is no mm. way action wise, choreography wise, that he would have kept going. Like he literally threw himself off the back. Like this is not realistic <laughs> at all. Or like he needed to go through the window and then Jody came back and made that decision to push him off and actually kill him. Mm. Anyway, so he falls down. He's speared on some like old white picket fence type thing. Massive like phallic through the chest kind of moment. But then all the teens who've been trying to fuck appear around him. And if you look, they've all got like knitted blankets on. Like where did these <laughs> knitted blankets come from? So they're not like kind of sheets or they're not like the things that they were all trying to fuck under when Jodie turned up. All of a sudden, they're all surrounded by like these knitted, like patchwork knitted blankets. <laughs> and they're all cuddled up in patchwork knitted blankets kids together and that's when obviously the killer rises up again um it's just mm. hilarious so falling down the stairs because it's like some lovel and hardy moment and then the fact that like about 50 patchwork knitted blankets then turn up and all the teens are cuddled up in them i really like that oh it's it's both grimy and adorable, adorable yeah i mean they will because it's you know end of the 90s they probably were dirty <laughs> they'll have found these blankets from a charity shop somewhere they won't be nice but <laughs> no they're like grunge yeah blankets. exactly they're grunge grunge blankets <laughs> so we've kind of briefly teased the the troubled production and release history mm. of cherry falls but kind of can you do you know much about kind of what challenges it faced and why there's kind of a, a specific reason why this film is deeply underseen um, I know a few bits. I suspect you may know more than me. So what I do know, I didn't know anything about this film until Shout Factory released it on Blu-ray and they put on the screenwriter's commentary and they put on the director's commentary. And then it got picked mm-hmm. up because like the screenwriter's vision was very different for the film to what the director wanted to do. And the director, I believe, put in the flashbacks that I have so much of an issue with and put in a lot more nudity. And then when they came to release it, um, the MPAA was like, no. So this is the tail end of the 90s, early 2000s. This is violence is bad. We're not doing this anymore. We're cutting everything. And so it got like massacred in the cutting room and then eventually in the US ended up as a TV movie and has gone down in history as like the most expensive TV movie of all time. So I think the budget was $14 million. Um, Mm. But I love reading American accounts of the production history because it's always like Mm. it wasn't released theatrically in the USA and is a TV movie and like, but it was released in the UK and it was released in Europe. And, you know major newspapers did review it as did film magazines Mm. so it's just interesting the perspective of history isn't it like yeah and also the context of it because i was um i was doing a little bit of digging Mm. and i you know i was i grew up in in europe Mm. so i grew up in mainland spain so my really my idea of it was well it's an american movie that was released and then made its way eventually onto like vhs or dvd or whatever here and and I was reading about how it never actually got a theatrical US release, but it also coincided, and this is just 
unfortunate coincidences mm-hmm. that this came um after the Columbine shootings, yes. after the Columbine massacre. So there was a massive US Senate hearing where they really started cracking down on, you know, because one of the big um moral panics that came out of the the Columbine massacre was this idea that violent movies and yeah. video games were pushing teenagers into committing violent yeah. acts and that became the running narrative for a long time and the senate was like cracking down on we need to essentially censor and monitor the amount of sex and violence that teenagers are exposed yeah. to in teen media and here comes cherry falls which is all about teenagers needing to fuck to get <laughs> saved but also getting slashed to fuck yes. unless they fuck so like, this was a recipe for disaster so they had a lot of issues with censorship yeah. and i know um the u.s system doesn't call it censorship ex- essentially mm. but that's what the mpaa really yeah. is they're forcing filmmakers to al- alter their films in order to be allowed to be released so um so yeah they had to cut and trim a lot of things and it just wasn't, I think, culturally appropriate or even allowed for them to to be released. And also it got caught in the middle of a production company sale. Yeah. So the production company that was producing the film that was really behind it got sold to a bigger company. That bigger company didn't give a fuck about Cherry Falls. They didn't really want to make it. You know, they didn't acquire it. They didn't put it into production. And then they also had to face all this additional troubles. Yeah. Not just the actual making of the film and going over budget and, and going over schedule, but also the, the not really being right for the moment in the, in the ether, in the culture. So like, this is just a big heap of trouble. Of course, they're going to be like, fuck this yeah, film. Yeah, like there's, there's no part of Cherry Falls that works for when it was due to come out, like at all, like yes. none of it. So like, even when it was coming out, like in the year 2000, this is a time um, of like a big social and cultural, like resurgence of obsession with virginity. So it's the year mm. that um, Britney Spears got propositioned for her virginity when apparently... Um, someone contacted a record company and offered her seven and a half million to um, take her virginity. And this was like all over the press. And this is like literally the same time that Cherry Falls came out, like within a week. And there'd be so many think pieces about virginity, particularly teenage girls' virginity. No one was really mm. interested in teenage boy virginity, but they were interested in like social and cultural representations of virginity and like what was going on and Britney Spears being heralded as pure and innocent and how that kind mm-hmm. of stands in contrast with something like Cherry Falls. Um, so there's this weird, like, curious resurgence with virginity and teenage girls at the same time that Cherry Falls comes out, which makes it, like, even weirder. But mm-hmm. the the actual kind of reception it got in the press, so while Cherry Falls got picked up, this is UK, by the way, I could find, like, uh-huh. nothing in the US, which kind of accords with it going out as a TV movie. But in the UK, mm-hmm. it opened nationally in big multiplexes. And it did get some broadsheet reviews. So it, it got picked up a few times in places like The Guardian in terms of think pieces about teenage sexuality and virginity. But then in the actual reviews from film critics, they didn't really talk about 
any of that at all. Like none of that was of interest. So like Philip French for The Observer, he was just pointing out how it's exactly 40 years ago this month that Psycho came out. And he reads Cherry Falls as kind of a combination of a throwback to Psycho plus the tail end, tail end of the slasher cycle. And then just points mm-hmm. out how it's really kind of slightly dodgy. Um, the, and he, he concludes his review saying, there were just two killings in Psycho. Cherry Falls has upwards of a dozen. I lost count. So I feel like, <laughs> I feel like Philip French isn't into it. And then like Danny Lee for Sight and Sound, he talks about it quite a lot. He spends most of the review doing the synopsis, but what he's more interested in is how Cherry Falls comes off the back of Scary Movie which comes off the back of Scream. Mm. So Danny Lee's angle is very much of Scream was one cycle, then Scary Movie was the next kind of spoof cycle, and then he situates Cherry Falls there. So, yeah, so he's doing something different with it completely. But again, there's very little interest in kind of the virginity angle. I mean... He points out like the film is trying to have its cake and eat it. So he says, you can't help Mm. feeling that Cherry Falls is guided by the same mealy mouth logic behind Scream. It offers the audience thumpingly obvious material, but winks at them in the hope that such a knowing approach makes it all, all okay. So he's kind of saying it knows what it's doing and then it's trying to do something else as well, but it doesn't necessarily work. It doesn't necessarily work. But he does love Brittany Murphy in it, which is the main thing. (laughs) (laughs) Which is always the correct take. Always the correct take. You know, this is also a period, and we're still kind of seeing that, but in a different cycle. Horror films don't always transcend into the mainstream critical arena, or at least they're definitely not spoken about with the same seriousness. And you could you could argue the same thing for um, comedies. You could argue the same for action movies. Basically, for any genre based fare and genre, not just being horror movies. Very often, critics are like judging it based on a set of. on a set of expectations that are not necessarily the ones that the that particular genre operates yeah, in. And what, so it's never going to be exactly. a good match. And like, if you'd have said, if I'd have said to you, how do you think Cherry Falls would be reviewed in Sight and Sound? Like, you know full well <laughs> how Cherry Falls. <laughs> Although actually, to be, to be fair, Danny Lee is a great yes. critic. And uh, I think that's actually a very, a very interesting yes. take on kind of putting it in in the cycle of um serious slasher spoof slasher and something completely different that kind of wants to be a bit of yeah. both i don't think cherry falls is ever no. a spoof but that kind of heather's yeah. vibe that kind of we want to be funny but we also want to be scary yeah. vibe the, is i think it goes back to screen yeah, it's that kind of arch knowing like mm. the game of it like like you were saying like so many of the kind of the film critics that are not kind of interested in genre reviewing these films they're not the audience that they're made for um mm. and films like cherry falls or like screaming that it's talking to its audience like it knows its demographic and it's saying you know and i know like let's have some fun together before we wrap up, Alison, is there anything that we haven't covered about Cherry Falls that you wanted to bring up? Um, I had a list of my favorite late nineties things about the film. <laughs> I think I think we've covered most of them. Um, so some of my favorite late nineties things about Cherry Falls was in the very first scene 
in Jodie's bedroom, she has um, a series of inflatable photo frames on her dressing table, which pleased me greatly <laughs> because I distinctly remember those happening. Um, some of my other favourite things were Kenny's overgelled hair, um, but we've talked about that already, <laughs> and the microfiche, which also feels very 90s. Um, Kenny playing guitar, but we've covered that as well. So I think it's mostly <laughs> just reiterating my love of kind of the 90s aesthetic of this film even if there are lots of things about it that are weird and troubling and don't make sense and are really tied mm-hmm. up like for example the giant shark they don't even seed this there's not an earlier scene in the science lab where like the giant shark's in the background and you think oh I wonder if they'll do anything with that you know like in slashers there's always a scene early mm-hmm. on where like in like Silent Night Deadly Night there's an axe on the wall and it's featured really prominently on the wall in the toy shop. And you're like, okay, this axe is going to be used. If there'd even been like a scene in the science lab earlier on where there's a giant shark, you'd be like, oh, okay, the giant shark's going to be used. But no, it comes out of nowhere. So I think just moments like that that make me really amused in Cherry Falls is is my is my deep kind of professorial academic contribution <laughs> to this analysis. <laughs> Um, Alison, thank you so much for your time and for your insight on this absolutely batshit new metal yes. slasher. Um, so where can people find more of your work online? Oh, um, thank you. Um, I'm at alisonpierce.com. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-P-E-I-R-S-E. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Alison Pierce, and I highly recommend you all sign up to my horror newsletter, which is free and it's called The Losers Club. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs>